turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians and chapter 3. As you are turning there, um, let me squeeze in a request to those of you who uh, joined today and anyone else who's joined in the recent few weeks and you've not had your portrait photo taken, please do come into the church office so that we can deal with that. That will reduce the numbers that we'll be taking when the year comes to an end. Uh, so please just remember that. Uh, those four of you, um, including the person who will now probably be the youngest church member, and then uh, uh, the rest of you. <clears throat> okay, so Ephesians chapter 3, it's not a long chapter, so I will read the whole of it before we proceed but let me also mention that this will be more like a Bible study, and therefore if all of you can have this chapter open, because we will really be give, giving something of a bird's eye view of the chapter, and then we will concentrate on the first three verses with the sermon title, Stewards of God's Grace. So let me begin with verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly, sorry, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace that was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. 
So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Well, that's the passage that we will begin looking at commencing today as we come back again to the series of messages that we were looking at previously entitled Celebrating the Unsearchable Riches of Christ. You will know that for a number of months, we had been studying First um, Samuel and uh, chapter 15. We were looking at the nature or the anatomy of uh, false repentance. Seeing from the life of Saul, the way in which he had professed to repent. But if you really study what was going on as he was interacting with the prophet Samuel, it was becoming more and more evident that this individual did not really repent. And as a result of that, in due season, well past first Samuel 15, the man was away from God, his life was a complete disaster, and in the end, he died in warfare. Well, we are back to the book of Ephesians. And uh, if you were here when we were studying Ephesians chapter 2, you will recall that essentially we saw, first of all, in um, the first part, that is verse 1 to verse 10, we saw how the Lord saves us from the time that we are dead in trespasses and sins to the time when we are now his workmanship, recreated, as it were, in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's what we saw in verse 1 to verse 10. And then from verse 11... All the way to the end, which is in verse 22, 
we saw how God unites all of us. In this case, it was Jews and Gentiles into one church. And today we can say all different tribes belong to this one church. It doesn't matter what your background is, your ethnicity, your tribe, and so on. Nobody comes into the church as a, um, an outsider, as somebody who is to be in the outer circles, so that it is certain people to whom the church belongs, and then the rest of us are merely visitors or uh, people who are just watching what's going on. We have seen from those verses that everyone who is saved, regenerated by the Spirit of God, you become one with everybody else in the church. The church is yours. You are to be responsible. And we saw that all this is achieved through God the Son and also through God the Holy Spirit. As we begin then to look at chapter 3, the main thing I want us to notice is that the first part of chapter 3 is a kind of detour. It's, it's not exactly what Paul had in mind as he was beginning to write chapter 1. I mean, chapter 3. I want you to notice it by comparing verse 1 to verse 14. And you will notice that verse 1 and verse 14 begins in exactly the same way. So, verse 1 says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Verse 14 for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So the Apostle Paul was beginning chapter 3 with the desire to speak about praying for these Ephesians. That's what he wanted to do. But as he mentions himself, as he begins to, uh, to speak about himself, he, he sort of realizes that there is some unfinished business that he needs to attend to. And consequently, he goes into that. And that's the reason why verse 1, uh, that sentence is an incomplete sentence. Just look at it for a moment. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and then he says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now, that's not the completing of the sentence. He's, he's broken the sentence and gone on to something else. It's like me coming to you and beginning to say something like, um, so yesterday um, when I, I, I went into town and then I say. Now, you know that I went into town, isn't it? And then I start talking about something else rather than what happened in town. And then a little later, I come back at the end and say, yeah, so 
Yesterday, when I went into town, I met so and so. And that then becomes the thread that I continue with. That's exactly what we are finding here. Paul wanted to speak about praying for these believers. And that's the reason why when you go to verse 14, he basically picks up what he almost left behind and then continues with the prayer all the way to the end of this chapter. So that's really what he had in mind. And then he diverts briefly. So as we begin to look at chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to verse 13, let's bear in mind that that is a, a section on its own that you can literally remove and the flow of what Paul had to speak about is complete in and itself. So what are the things that he then deals with in this little bracket that uh, he deals with here. First of all, you can't miss the fact that uh, he now spends these 13 verses talking about himself. Talking about himself. It's very rare in this book for Paul to talk about himself. In fact, normally in Paul's letters, he introduces himself and then he begins to teach. And then at the end, when he's about to finish his letter, that's when he talks about himself again. And it is what we call the final greetings. Here, he introduces himself at the beginning, deals with the doctrinal issues, and then suddenly, in the middle of his letter, he then begins to talk about himself again. So, I want you to notice this. Let's quickly go to the, the section. And the reason why he speaks about himself is because as he touches on himself, he realizes, uh-oh, I think I do need to open up a few issues. And then he goes into them. So here it is. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and that's when he pauses and then begins to speak about himself. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive, perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. And then verse 7, I just have skipped a few things in the middle. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, and on and on he goes. So that's the first primary change that you notice. That here he was teaching and teaching and teaching. He was about to go into prayer and then he begins to speak about himself. And in a sense, 
you, you can't miss it because he's, he begins this section with the way in which he was suffering in prison. He ends this section with the way in which he is suffering in prison. Let's notice that. Verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Let's skip to verse 13. Verse 13. So, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So he hasn't lost the, the train of thought. It's just that he has realized, let me spend some time to explain to these people my own ministry. Why I have found myself in prison. Okay, there's a ministry that I have which has landed me here. And so, don't worry about me suffering in prison. It goes with the territory. It goes with the work that I am doing for you, which is for your glory. Okay, that's the first aspect. The second is that he spends his time speaking about the extraordinary call of God that is upon his life. The extraordinary call of God upon his life. So he's not just talking in terms of, I was brought up this way and this is what I like to do during my spare time and so on. But he's spending the time here seeking to show these brethren that God has singled him out and given him an extraordinary call. So let's again just read a few verses so that we can see what it is he is speaking about. He says there in verse 2, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which is where I have uh, picked the title for my sermon. We will see that towards the end of my message. The stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. And again he goes, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Again, when you read this, you can perceive my, my insight into the mystery of Christ. Again, verse 7, which we already read, of this gospel, I was made a minister. So it wasn't my own doing. God made me a steward, a minister, a servant, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. So that's what, in a sense, he is concentrating on. And over and over again, he's making the point that God has revealed in a very special, unique, extraordinary way, he has revealed certain truths to him. And it is these truths 
that he continues to share. These were not just revealed to him alone. They've been revealed to him and also to the other apostles and also to the prophets. We will look at that a little later. But it's this which has then resulted in him being called to fulfill this specific responsibility. Number three. He is also speaking now about his ministry to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. So first of all, we saw that he's speaking about himself. Number two, about his calling and ministry. Number three, about his calling and ministry to the Gentiles. Let us quickly notice that. First of all, in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. To do what? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So, what Paul is doing here is, is basically saying, I have this God-given ministry, and this God-given ministry is primarily towards you, the, the Gentiles. Yes, I preach to fellow Jews. I do want Jews to come to Christ. But God has given me a unique ministry, and it is primarily for you the Gentiles. And this is what then connects what he has strayed into to the previous chapter. Because if you remember, verse 11 downwards in chapter 2 was primarily concerned with the Gentiles. Verse 11, chapter 2 and verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And what we saw there was that the Gentiles were now brought in union with the Jews to become one body, the church. And so all he is doing here is coming back to that and saying, I have a special ministry for you. You, the Gentiles, listen to me. God 
has given me grace to minister his grace to you who are the Gentiles. Lastly, by way of this lengthy introduction, I want you to notice that Paul ends this section that we are dealing with with something vital that he had mentioned earlier about the Gentiles. Okay, so let's go to chapter 3 again. And this time I want you to notice verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 11. It says there, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what is that? He says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And that's where he was driving to before he finally says, So, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is for your glory. The point he's making there is this, that through this ministry of the gospel, that God has given to Paul, Gentiles are being brought to that place where they have access to God, the kind of access that was limited to the Jews. Previously, they were alienated. They, they came to the temple and they filled the outer court. They were not entitled to enter into the inner sanctuary as it were, to be with the people of God. But now, through this ministry, they have this privilege, this overwhelming privilege of coming in as well, having this access with boldness and confidence. Well, I want you to notice this in chapter 2 and verse 18. Chapter 2 and verse 18. Let me begin with verse 17. And he came, referring to Jesus Christ, and preached peace to you who were far off, that is the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, that is the Jews. Now notice verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So he's basically tying all this together. What he was saying in chapter 2 is what he is now literally repeating in chapter 3 in that short bracket. So what is he saying if we're to now put all that together. Having introduced himself and saying I'm about to pray, he realizes, I think let me bring myself into the picture so that these people can understand the bigger picture of what God is doing. And in that way, they are not overwhelmed with, oh, oh, this man is suffering. This man is suffering. Look at his suffering. But that they might realize that this is all, listen, according to plan. 
I am simply a servant of God who has been factored into a grand plan that God has. And this grand plan, which in a sense we've already seen here, about the Gentiles being brought into a common household with the Jews to be one with them in the worship of God, that's all that I am doing for them. In other words, for you, I am simply fulfilling this ministry. And therefore, don't be overwhelmed with sorrow. This is actually for your glory. And having said that, he goes back to where he started. For this reason, I am praying for you. For this reason, I am praying for you. If we understand that bigger picture, then as we now begin to dig deep into it, we will not get lost. We will realize what is happening here. So, I want to spend the rest of my time just pulling out a few lessons from the first three verses. Just a few lessons from the first three verses. And... Uh, I want to use Paul as an example, but finally I want to apply it to all of us. Uh, that's the reason why I am not entitling our sermon a steward of God's grace, because then it would be Paul alone that we're talking about. But the title of my sermon is Stewards of God's Grace, because that's what we all are. And I hope to make that point very clear. All of us who are Christians are stewards of the grace of God. But we are stewards in different ways. We are stewards in different ways. So first of all, the Apostle Paul speaks in terms of suffering or being in a prison. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. The point that Paul is obviously making here is the fact that when God has called you to serve him, it does not negate your suffering in this life. The fact that God has given you a specific role to play for him in the grand outworking of his kingdom, that does not absolve you from suffering. You will suffer. And Paul here is a typical example. At the time that he was writing his letter to the Ephesians, to the Philippians, to the Colossians, and at least also um, one or two others, he was writing from prison. So when he says a prisoner of Christ Jesus, he really means a prisoner for Christ Jesus. He's suffering in prison because of his work and ministry that has to do with this bringing in of the Gentiles. 
And it's something that we, as God's people, need to, to come to terms with. Because it, it's easy for you to begin thinking that if I am serving the Lord, then the Lord will take care of all business in my life, and consequently all will be well with me. And when the Lord now allows you to undergo one form of suffering or the other, you then begin to question, Lord, am I not your servant? Why then are you allowing this to happen to me? Well, Paul was languishing in prison. In fact, when you read Philippians, you discover that the Philippians literally had to minister to him. They sent supplies to him. They sent Epaphroditus to go and take care of his needs. He was no longer church planting, which is what his primary calling was to be. He was not preaching the gospel from city to city to city. He wasn't doing that. He was an individual who was now stuck in a prison cell. Ministry can be like that. That you actually even begin to think there is something wrong. There is a lady by the name of Amy Carmichael who went off as a missionary to Asia. And almost all her life, she was in Asia, that is, she ended up being ill and spent the rest of her life in bed, in a sick bed. She never ultimately went back home because she wanted to remain on the mission field. But process that with me for a while. That here you are, you've gone out to serve the Lord, and then when you get there, you are ill, and literally the rest of your life you are bedridden. God does not prevent that from happening. We also learned about um, Adoniram Judson, who also went as a missionary to, uh, to Asia. In fact, in his case, it was Burma. Today is Myanmar. In the process, he lost two to three wives. In fact, he spent quite a bit of the time there in prison. Again, it's easy for you to start asking the question, Lord, have you sent me here? Lord, have you really called me? Then what am I doing here when really I ought to be there preaching, bringing souls to Christ, translating the Bible, 
and, and discipling people and, 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 and training leaders and doing so much for the kingdom. Here I am rotting in a prison cell. Well, God has his ways. And Paul is a typical example for us. Bottom line is that it does not negate your suffering in this life. It doesn't. But the opposite is equally true. And it is this. The fact that you are suffering does not mean, does not necessarily mean that God is chastising you. That perhaps there is some sin in your life that God is unhappy with and therefore he is punishing you for that sin. Because again we come back to this text. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus or for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. It's got nothing to do with sin in my life. It's got nothing to do with me being punished as I am undergoing this period. For It's actually for your good. The Lord knows what he is doing as I am presently in this prison cell. Let me quickly mention the fact that that's a, a big pastoral issue. Because often when God's people who are genuinely serving him, genuinely doing so, discover that Perhaps they are suffering from cancer or whatever else it might be that is really, really destroying their lives. It's very easy for the rest of us to become like Job's comforters. To start going to them and saying, perhaps there's something you've done wrong. Perhaps we just had this different view of you. In actual fact, you just need to own up. Maybe this is God catching up with you. But sometimes it could be us, ourselves, who are serving the Lord, who might begin to spend all our time asking ourselves, what sin is there that the Lord is punishing me for? When in actual fact, it could be in his immutable ways, simply part of God's, the outworking of his plan. But lastly, and this is where I want to spend the rest of my time on stewardship of God's grace, God uses men in a special way to carry out his mission of saving sinners across history. God uses men in a special way to carry out his mission of saving sinners across history. Paul refers to this as a stewardship. Let's quickly look at verse 2 now. 
assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. The word stewardship there refers to a, a manager of a household. A manager of a household. It's something that's not very strange to us in Africa because even a middle-class home will normally have a servant. So you don't need to be extremely rich for you to have servants in your home. And the, the household servant normally is somebody who manages the things that are taking place in the house when you are away. You've gone to work, you've gone out of town, wherever it is, this person remains as a kind of custodian, as a kind of manager of your property. The, the person's thought and life is around that responsibility. That's the word that the Apostle Paul is using here when he speaks about the stewardship of God's grace. So you can imagine it's, it's as though God has this property that you can call grace to reach out to Gentiles and he goes away. He's gone. He's in heaven. Paul and the others have remained with this property that they must ensure is, is carrying out its cause, its aim, its, its producing its fruit while he, the owner, is gone. He is away. Paul is saying, this is what God has left with me. Assuming you have heard of this stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now, in the Old Testament, this was primarily given to the prophets of the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, it was initially given to the apostles and the prophets. The apostles and the prophets. And so you notice that in verse 5, although we'll come to it later, but at least we can read it here now. Verse 4 says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed, notice, to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So this being given initially was given to the apostles and to the prophets. But it was not exclusively given to them in terms of the, the bigger picture with respect to the revelation. This revelation, this revelation, it was only given to them. But we notice in chapter 4, very quickly, chapter 4, verse 11, that there were others that were brought into this context. 
I'll begin from verse 9. From verse 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, and that's Jesus Christ, that he might feel all things. And then here it is. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, and notice this, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And the word shepherds and teachers is not two different functions. It's actually one. So it is, as has been often said, the pastor teachers, the pastor teachers or the shepherd teachers. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastor teachers. So while on the one hand, the special revelation, God revealing to human beings on earth, was exclusively in the New Testament given to the apostles and to the prophets with respect to this ongoing role Paul later on adds this to the evangelists that you might refer to as the missionaries the ones who were taking this message further afield and then number two the pastor teachers, those who would remain behind to look after the flock that was there within the context of the church. What do we learn from this? First of all, that the priesthood of all believers does not negate the different stewardships that are there of God's grace. We are all priests of God in the sense that we all have access into God's presence. We can all pray to him. We don't need priests to represent us before God. All of us have got access to God. However, we all have different gifts. All of us have different gifts. And it is important for us to realize that according to those gifts, we are all stewards of God's grace. We all are. We are all responsible in one way or the other as far as the dissemination of God's grace into this world for the sake of saving sinners. We've got different roles to play. And we must be responsible to ensure that we are playing our role. Why did the Apostle Paul only cite apostles and prophets here in uh, verse 11? Uh, sorry, in verse 5, when he says he has revealed to the holy apostles and prophets why well the reason is simple they played a foundational role their role these two offices if we can use that phrase were playing a, the role of laying the foundation 
and the rest of us participate in the rest of the superstructure. We see that in chapter 2 and verse 20. Let's go back to that chapter 2 and verse 20. I begin with verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Listen to this. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. He doesn't add evangelists there. He doesn't add the uh, pastor teachers there. It is... Only these two who lay the foundation. And the foundation is in terms of this revelation that God gives to them. He doesn't continue revealing until the second coming of Christ. He doesn't do that. God has revealed through the apostles. He has revealed through these prophets. And it is now all in this book, it is inscripturated. It is in black and white. Nobody should come to you. Nobody should come to the Christian church and say that God is now revealing other things to him. And these are the things, therefore, you should follow what he is teaching. Because in terms of revelation... God gave it in the foundation. The rest of us are to simply build upon that foundation. So whatever gift the Lord has given you to serve him, you are not going to start coming up with new teachings. No. You teach what is in the Bible. As you are sharing God's word to people that they might come to Christ. You share God's written word, not your own thoughts or claims that last night while I was still sleeping, God began to speak to me these things that I am now coming to share with you. No. Whatever gift God has given you, it is not to come up with new teachings. Paul could say the mystery, back to our text, the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Verse 3. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I have written briefly. Nobody today should be saying that. But let me again say, that doesn't mean we have no stewardship. That doesn't mean we have no responsibility. We do. There is no Christian who has no gift. There isn't. There is no Christian that God calls and then says, for you, just go to church and go back home. That's all I expect of you. Just go to church and go back home. No, friends. God is on a grand agenda 
we are going through a season of grace. A season of grace. Glorious grace. Matchless grace. God has given his own son already in order to bring people who deserve hell to hear the good news and be rescued from sin so that they might now become his children. And those individuals, as we are speaking, are lost. They are in the world. They are drinking in sin as if it was water. God has gifted us differently. We are the body of Christ. Some people are ears, others are mouthpieces, others are hands, others are feet. But together as God's people, using our gifts, we are to reach the world with God's grace. And you are gifted in one way or another. You are. You must never allow yourself to end up in a situation where all you do is go to church, sit, listen to sermons, go back home week after week after week until you die. You need to be able to say, I'm also a steward of God's grace. According to the gift that God has given me, or the gifts that God has given me, what am I doing to ensure that God's grace through me is reaching his world. What am I doing? And then lastly, it's this. As I use that gift, like Paul, it will cost me something. It will. At some stage, I will suffer but it's part of the deal. It's part of the deal. I may not be a preacher. I may not be an evangelist. I may not be a pastor. But I must still be able to say, here is my role, and I'm going to play it faithfully. And even if I suffer, it is part of the game because God's grace is worth it. I've taken long, but let me end with one point, and it is this. When God sent his son into this world, he also came as a steward of grace. He suffered. He died, actually. Now, if God's own son, in the wisdom of God, paid his life's blood, who are we to think that our servanthood for God excludes suffering? Excludes suffering. It doesn't. In sharing the unsearchable riches of Christ to a dying world, it's worth paying the price. We'll learn more and more about this 
from Paul in due season. Amen.